like the suicide problems, the alcohol and drug addiction, like it's like if you think of a tree. So those are kind of all the branches of the problems, but there's a real core or like the root of the problem. So lots of times we are, we're addressing all these branch symptoms instead of the actual real problem, which is totally. like a loss of culture and knowledge. Oh, yeah. So to me, burning comes into that. And I know people think like, oh, it's just like burning a forest, like, or, you know, yeah. burning the understory. It's not a big thing, but, you know, it's getting people out on land. It's telling them how much their ancestors knew about forests, how well they managed the forest, how they were able to live in like very difficult conditions through that knowledge base that they had. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then, you know, having them practice it and try and bring it back and, and be valued. Hey guys, what's happening? Welcome to Your Forest. I'm Matthew Kristoff. On this podcast, we talk about environmental sciences with a goal of healthy forest and sustainability for all values. On this podcast today, we're talking about fire, but not the way you're thinking of it. Right now, uh, wildfires are running rampant across Alberta. Um, a bunch of communities are currently evacuated or on evacuation notice. So this is a, you know, wildfire is a very real issue in this province and in other provinces as well. Uh, I mean, as I speak today, uh, Northern Alberta is completely covered in a shroud of wildfire smoke from the fires happening at high level and near Wabuska. And the whole province has this orange glow from the sun being filtered through that smoke. So everybody in the province is aware of it. And you, I mean, there, there was days where you can't even, you know, you can't even go outside cause you just start coughing from the smoke. It's, it's very, very thick depending on where you are in the province, of course. Um, so that's wildfire <laughs> and obviously creates a lot of fear and a lot of emotions in a lot of people. Um, today's episode is not about wildfire. Today's episode is, as you can tell by the title, called Good Fire. So Good Fire is a bit of a, it's an, it's an interesting teaser into this, but uh, it's, I wanted to talk about cultural burning, so indigenous burning. So pre-colonialization, um, indigenous people, First Nations people used to burn for a number of reasons. You could call it, you could call it a controlled burn because they they were in control of as many factors as could possibly be in control of. And they would burn for very specific reasons. They would burn for creating moose habitat or for um, creating, depending on where you are, for berry production or for a specific medicinal plant or for any number of things, right? So they were very in tune with, you know, what the forest needed as far as bio creating biodiversity and that kind of stuff. And, you know, since settlers have been here they have been kicked out of those areas and unable to do uh cultural burning which not only has an environmental impact but also has a huge cultural impact on those communities and it it lessens their community health in a huge huge way and i brought on amy christensen amy cardinal christensen she is a research scientist with uh the federal government and she studies uh well she's a wildfire scientist but she focuses very specifically on indigenous burning and what indigenous burning was, uh, how we can start to get it back on the landscape, uh, why it's important, why people that are non-indigenous people should care about it. And uh, we've actually done a podcast series together called Good Fire, which is going to be out in September of 2019. And that is going to do a full deep dive into the very specific problems and issues, the history and the future 
of indigenous burning and uh, and and how we can start to incorporate that back on that on our landscape in order to have healthy forests for all values. So yeah, that podcast is going to do a deep dive. It's going to do a lot of different things, uh, the cultural side, the political side, the philosophical side. You guys should really check it out. I'll make sure to remind you come September because obviously it's a little early. But uh, yeah, she's an awesome, awesome woman. She has a lot of great insight. And this is a really good conversation if you guys uh, you know, want to learn about indigenous culture as well as you know healthy forests, including more values into what we consider sustainable forest management because right now, um, I think we're always expanding that idea of sustainable forest management to include more and more in order to achieve this goal of sustainable forests, you know, for, in perpetuity forever. And we're still heading in that direction. So talking about indigenous burning is a big part of that and it needs to start happening again, I think. Um, and Amy's the perfect person to talk about it. She can speak from both perspectives. I mean, she's an academic as well as an indigenous person and she's dedicated her life to this. So she has a very good, really good perspective uh, from both sides and can see the gap, the information gap that exists there. So you guys are really gonna like this episode. Trust me, it's great. Sponsors for this episode, Greenlink Forestry, the original sponsor, and I couldn't thank them enough for their support. Thank you very much. And uh, they're doing good work in the forestry sector. And uh, also Damage Timber. Damage Timber is a apparel company out of Edmonton, Alberta, and they are supporting environmental sciences through the sale of their clothing. You can go to damagetimber.com and pick their clothing up. Uh, 10% of everything they sell goes towards a scholarship for people going into environmental sciences, which is really cool. They're certified uh, 2% sustainable and all this kind of stuff. It's really interesting. So definitely check them out, damagetimber.com, your force tenant checkout, and uh, you get 10% off. So yeah, cool. And then uh, the most important one for this year, for 2019, is Wes Fraser. Wes Fraser is a uh, forestry company in Western Canada, and they're doing great work making sure that you know we continue to push the boundary of uh, what we call sustainable forest management. So thanks very much for uh, making this podcast possible. I appreciate, uh, appreciate the support. And uh, yeah, without any further mess around, let's get into it. It's Amy and I talking about uh, indigenous burning. Here we go. talking about like this show that we've been working on it's like it's definitely opened up my eyes to the complexities that is cultural burning right and indigenous burning um so how would you explain indigenous burning to somebody like like if you come across somebody at a cocktail party or whatever like how do you explain that to them yeah like what my job is kind of (laughs) (laughs) so i guess i would say like that indigenous people have been stewarding on the land for a long time so there's um, basically um, we needed to be able to live off the land and off the resources, mm-hmm. right? So I think like our ancestors saw that by using fire in certain ways, it would encourage certain things. So different types of plant growth or mm-hmm. attract animals to the area or, you know, decrease fire risk, right? So it was kind of like a, a method of science whereby re- repetition and seeing fire on the landscape, you know, they found that it was actually could be used as a tool mm-hmm. for how to live. And right. so I think, yeah, that's kind of where indigenous burning has come from obviously it was stopped um when uh settlers first came because they were trying to protect timber and protect watersheds and they thought that excluding fire was the way to do that Mm -hmm. 
uh, obviously hasn't worked that that great. So yeah. yeah, so moving forward, you know, I think Indigenous people have always been involved in fire in the background, but hopefully, you know, get get back burning again. Yeah, for sure. Because it's, yeah. it's so a, cultural burning is something that was happening for a long time for mm-hmm. whatever, for thousands of years or whatever, however yeah. long that you know, First Nations people have been here. Yep. And it was part of it was part of the ecosystem, right? Like it was, mm-hmm. it was, it was happening all the time, keeping the land healthy and this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, so how do you go about explaining that to somebody who's never had any experience with fire? Like all they see is, mm-hmm. is wildfire, right? Yeah. And they see there's like the, the catastrophe that is a wildfire going through a town or something like that. Yeah. How do you, do you, do you come across people that are like mm-hmm. not, they don't understand the like, important health benefits? Like, I mean, the, yeah ecosystem health benefits of fire yeah even in our indigenous communities like lots of people are now worried about fire and scared of fire yeah and i think so for me when i come across people like you know that kind of have that tendency to think of fire as bad i always say you know well there's good fire and that's kind of you know the name of from the podcast so you know, when we're doing these kind of good fires, it's basically, it's not a wildfire. It's totally different. Mm-hmm. So I think lots of people see like prescribed burning that agencies do where, you know, they're kind of start, some of them, you know, they're starting crown fires. Yeah. And so they see that and equate it with what we want to do. But like we're doing very low risk burning at like um, very off season times yeah. where, you know, a chance of having an escape fire or a crown fire is very low. So early spring, late fall. Mm-hmm. So I think like the the easiest way that I would say to people, you know, if they were, you know, scared or worried about it, you know, I usually just say that, you know, there's good fire too that happens. And, you know, the boreal forest especially is a fire dependent ecosystem. It needs fire to survive. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's indigenous people know that there's ways to do that from, you know, our years of you know, well, a long time of being here since time immemorial, we say. So that means further back than uh, memory or stories can tell us. Mm-hmm. Than recorded history, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, and even our ancestors, because, you know, some tri- or some uh, bands have have stories, you know, that go back 6,000 years that they can remember and recall in their oral histories. So even further than that. It's a long game of telephone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. But the cool thing is, like the one with the one Gitskin band, they... Um, they had an oral history of a landslide. So in their oral history, it was a bear roaring into this valley and kind of like um, devouring the community, right? And so when people hear that, they're like, oh, you know, a big bear came in. But then they actually found through geologic records and stuff that there was 6,000 years ago, a huge landslide that occurred into this valley. Huh. Yeah. So, So yeah, that's the neat thing about science and indigenous knowledge now that's happening is, you know, kind of combining these stories and i mean for indigenous people it's great because it provides kind of proof around land claims yeah (laughs) and territory yeah yeah well that's the thing i guess i want to start with explaining the so this is something that was it sounds like it was something that was like integrated into like the culture in a sense that's it it wasn't just like a prescribed burn like we Mm -hmm. think today people hear about prescribed burns and they're on board with prescribed burns right like okay yes we need to keep the forest healthy Mm -hmm. by burning it because we've been suppressing burns for so long so we need to start reintroducing it, right? Yep. So how does cultural burning differ mm-hmm. in your like in, in your own words from yep. the cultural burning aspect, right? I think that's mm-hmm. where um, people start to break down a little bit, yep. right? Because they, they can get on board with the, the environmental like health, mm-hmm. ecosystem health and stuff yep. like that. But I think we should explain maybe like more the cultural aspect of it sure, and the yep. important to indigenous health and that, and you know that kind of stuff. Sure, yeah. So when you think of like a forest structure, 
you know, you obviously have your big trees, your old trees in the forest, and you have like your new ones coming up, and then your understory of plants, right? I mean, that's a very simplistic way of putting it. It works. (laughs) So for prescribed burning, generally what happens is, you know, they, well, sometimes, you know, they ignite it by helicopter or other things, but it generally takes everything, right? Like even sometimes the the older, bigger trees, Mm -hmm. because they're um, basically introducing sometimes, I should say high intensity fires, sometimes Mm -hmm. they're not, but they're generally trying to start high intensity fires um, to reduce wildfire risk, right? Right. And And for ecological benefits too, but lots of them, you know, it's generally starting these big crown fires that kind of, you know, take everything and almost mimic a wildfire. Mm-hmm. So for an indigenous burning and, and, and what we do, it's, um, it's, it's usually low intensity burns and they're all in the understory. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to do is like, um, leave the big trees. Mm-hmm. So to kind of protect the canopy and then remove any like older or diseased trees. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and basically restore what's in the understory. So, you know, lots of times now we're seeing like that high fuel load of like, you know, litter or, you know, even like medicinal plants or berries that are just overgrown and really not producing. Yeah. So for our culture, like, um, the one person was saying to me, like, you know, that we burn to live because, you know, if those berries aren't producing or if there's not medicinal plants that we can use as medicines or, if there's not moose or deer coming to the area, we die, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's that yeah. blank, like, you know, back historically. So yeah. I think that what they found through kind of um, doing these understory burns is that they actually promote these um, berries and things. So they're um, generally you don't want to burn the top of the soil. You want to preserve the plant roots, mm-hmm. but kind of take and remove all that dead litter that's on the top. And so a byproduct of that is that you remove um, fuel load. Right. From the forest. But the hard thing with it is that it takes time. Mm. So agencies, I think, you know, it's a lot easier just to go in and light a big fire because our burns are slow mm-hmm. most of the time. And I want to say that, too, because some nations do do high intensity fires for different reasons. Mm-hmm. But generally, you know, we're doing these kind of low, very early spring burns that, mm-hmm. you know, you can be on for mm-hmm. days and only burn a few hectares, right? right? Because you're making sure it doesn't get too hot, but you want it hot enough. So yeah. it really involves a lot of caretaking or stewarding. Mm-hmm. So I think like that's kind of the one down downfall of the burning we do in terms of, you know, managing mm-hmm. uh, the fire risk in Canada. Right. But on a positive way, you know, that it doesn't, it tends to then leave the, you know, the big trees and kind of create more of a park-like thing that that people like, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's easy to get around and it attracts birds and and moose and other things to the area. Yeah, it's a different, it's different than the just kind of, yeah, thick kind of can't walk through it yeah yeah, yeah. well yeah. like northern saskatchewan i went there for um some field work on an evacuation study actually and like i could not believe the black spruce i was just like how do moose live here because it was just so close together and so dense mm-hmm. like there's no way a big moose can get through that area right or any of so yeah so i think that in that way like what we're doing is kind of opening up those areas okay yeah, yeah. so it's do you do you have can you speak to kind of the the change uh, on the, uh, from the environmental perspective? And yeah. we'll, I think we'll get back into the cultural side of it and, and get more sure, depth yeah. into that in a little bit. Yeah. But from just to try to set the stage of the environmental impact that it's had going from century or not even centuries, but like thousands of years of cultural burning, indigenous yeah. burning on the landscape to 
all of a sudden none of it like yeah. um, whatever it was like the 1900s or something like that it was all yeah. i think it was all stopped right like yeah. it was it was you can explain it better than i can yeah. but can you explain what happened to the forest when we went from that system yeah. to the current like to where we're currently at yeah. you know, to, to totally not allowing it and then why we need to start bringing it back in Sure. It's a big question, but like just to set set the stage, right? And then yeah, well, and I don't want to make you know like early settlers either seem to be the bad guys, you know. Like I think when they came here and were you know moving across Canada and obviously doing some bad things, but in terms of fire, you know, I think that they just saw it as a big hazard, right? And so it would you know take trees, right? And they needed those trees, um, and it would uh, you know kind of make a bunch of uh, the water not nice, right? And they need water to survive and. And, you know, on the prairies, you know, they would get these roaring grass fires coming across the prairie, right? So you can see that it was scary for people and why people would want to ban it. But I think what they didn't realize, you know, was that we need fire in Canada, Mm -hmm. um, especially in in other places around the world. So the earliest fire suppression campaign in Canada was actually in 1610 in Newfoundland. 1610? Yeah. So that was when (laughs) they first said, start saying no Indian should set fire to the forest. Huh. But interestingly enough, there were surveyors that were going across Canada, you know, kind of um, at the front of all the settlers. And they were saying like that, you know, a a white person basically dropping a cigar stub in the prairie is much more dangerous than an Indian fire. So those, so I think that some people recognize, you know, that the type of burning that we were doing was, was beneficial, but there was so much. Purposeful. It wasn't an accident. It was, yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. But there was so much like fear. And then I think, you know, there was that real, um, European feeling of supremacy of knowledge, right? Like that what they were doing and how they managed things was proper. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Canada, you know, when they came, so they saw our knowledge as, as being inferior to theirs. Whereas like, instead of looking at it as, you know, like we've survived here for thousands of years, like maybe listen to what we're trying to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh yeah. The Pocahontas, Pocahontas situation, right? Yeah. Savages or whatever was a real yeah. thing, right? It was, yeah. Yeah. And they probably just, I don't know what they thought we were doing with fire, but obviously that it was something scary. Well, and they just saw it. They probably just saw you as godless savages or whatever, <laughs> right? Like yeah. a different, a different culture. And it's not, it's not mm-hmm. seen as legitimate. It's seen as well, we're going to bring yep. Christianity and, 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 you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Good industry to this place. And it's, yeah, I don't yeah. Know, who knows what they were thinking, but. Well, and when we look at ecosystems right like in europe it's very different and i mean even in england and you know places that settlers originally came from in france and stuff like it's so different there because it's the population is so much more dense yeah whereas you know in canada it's different we have like forests that's fire dependent we so and i think when they came too, they just saw our forests as being so beautiful and like you know park like they always say like you know you could easily navigate through the forest but we would say you know well that's probably because of wildfire for one and also indigenous burning yeah that that we were doing on the landscape and so this too i don't want to say you know that or people listening to this to think that you know indigenous people were burning every square foot of canada right. and managing it right like we managed our territories and around like our communities and some nations used burning a lot more than others mm-hmm. so yeah but but across canada what we see is that you know from the micmac to um you know the coast of salish people used fire in canada right. for um basically so they could live on the land 
I don't imagine you can like estimate this, but what mm-hmm. do you think the estimated population was of indigenous people from mm-hmm. like, say just like pre-colonialization? Yeah. Do you, know, do, you have, do you have any kind of rough idea? I thought there was actually just a study that came out on that. Did you see that? Because it was talking about how there was like actually a change in the, the world's climate oh. because of the genocide of indigenous. Oh, I did yeah. see that. But I can't, they had numbers in there, where, but I can't remember how much it was. But I know that like, you know, we dropped from a lot of people living it was on like 90% this. of the population died from like diseases and stuff that were just mm-hmm. like unintentionally just came with yeah 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 well the, the settlers the right? smallpox like yeah. was was a big one so that was when you know um and so this is kind of leads to like the distrust that a lot of indigenous people have of 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 um you know non-indigenous people in Canada is like when they when settlers first came over you know they would go to the indigenous communities and give them presents of blankets Mm. and what they the indigenous people didn't realize was that those were blankets that were you know used for smallpox people that were suffering or died of smallpox and when they died they would like give their blankets to the indigenous population do we know that that was like that was because i read something Mm -hmm. that was saying that it was Mm -hmm. it wasn't intentionally that they spread the smallpox but it happened anyways well i think it was probably well i think back then they didn't really know that much about transmission of disease it wasn't intentional it was just like it was yeah they didn't get that germs yeah yeah they just had blankets come available yeah they happened to be from there and they're like oh we'll give them to the like yeah yeah exactly but then i think you know maybe if some people like there was lots of of um you know written things in even in the federal government right with like john a mcdonald and other people who mm-hmm. you know saw that things like that were working to uh you know get basically get rid of indigenous people so yeah you know so it's not like they tried to stop the practice or like there was a big health intervention right. <laughs> or anything well there was a lot of racism back then it was yeah. not there weren't, we weren't exactly a mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you call it a, a uh mm-hmm. a recognized society right we definitely didn't recognize that Mm -hmm. you know racism was a problem and all this kind of stuff but anyways like getting into Mm -hmm. so i guess we should bring this back to burning at some point but it's (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) Um, it's all all relates it's all related yeah Yeah. totally yeah okay so so like i think um in the communities that i go to now and i and i speak with you know they um and because every most indigenous people want to bring back burning right and bring back that cultural um, practice to their landscape because Mm -hmm. Um, most elders, when they look at the forest, the first thing that they say is that it's unhealthy and that it needs cleaning up. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I first started working a bunch of elders, I'd always hear this cleaning up phrase, cleaning up. And, you know, it took a while till I realized that, you know, that meant fire that they wanted. Because, you know, you don't normally think of that. You think like, oh, go out with a rake or something (laughs) like Donald Trump thinks that we're doing. (laughs) But, you know, it was actually, you know, that they wanted... To, to use fire to kind of clean up all that that dead litter on the forest floor okay. so um most of them talk about like you know that they they just want to do that again in their territory mm-hmm. but i think they also realize that because of the fire suppression that we've had over the last you know 50 to 300 years depending where you are in canada yeah that it's not that easy just to bring back our burning practices right because um we burned on intervals so depending on where you were, or, you know, if you were burning a meadow, you might burn the meadow every three years. If you were burning like, you know, an old growth forest and you might burn every 20 years. Like, you know, it just yeah. d- depended on, uh, on, on what you were burning or what objective you were trying to achieve. So, you know, we, and now we've excluded fire. So, I mean, the litter and the, the buildup of fuel is crazy. So I think like now, 
most of the elders I talked to, they say like, if we went and tried to do this now, like we would basically burn down the forest because we'd be trying to start a low intensity burn, but there's just too much fuel on the on the floor. Mm-hmm. So it would um, immediately like escalate. So and, and that lo- falls in line with yeah. like, with with Western mm-hmm. uh, Western scientific knowledge as well, right? Is it seems like we've mm-hmm. gotten to a place now where there's mm-hmm. just it's it's hard. We've been suppressing fire for so long that it's hard to start to re-engage with fire because you're right, the, f- the fuel mm-hmm. buildup is is unlike it's ever been before. So yeah. that, that has to have a huge impact on the environmental integrity mm-hmm. and like habitat availability and biodiversity yep. relative to pre-colonialization, mm-hmm. right? And and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. that's I think that's kind of what one point I wanted to hit home was the, mm-hmm. the difference between what, you know, quote unquote natural and mm-hmm. I would consider when the indigenous people were like were the only mm-hmm. people here that was part of the natural system it was sustainable and it was you know what I mean um, mm-hmm. well I think the difference is like one difference between the western and the euro perspective and our perspective is that we're part of nature so like you said like we believe that like the stewarding that we do is part of that natural cycle of the forest because that's why we were put here mm-hmm. to um you know h- help promote that or you know help, help to you know basically to help mother earth right yeah um and so i think whereas like europeans see themselves almost as separate or distinct from the forest or totally from do. nature yeah absolutely our entire society yeah. today we still see ourselves as leave nature alone leave like all this right it's like yeah. no no we are of nature yeah like we are like this is very galactical but it's like uh, <laughs> i like that word galactical <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i think it was neil degrasse tyson or somebody yeah. said something along the mm-hmm. lines of he's like we are one way in which the universe knows itself yeah okay. so to separate yeah. ourselves from nature mm-hmm. is inherently flawed because yeah. we are of nature we came from it we are yeah. still of it yeah and everything we do is natural in, in mm-hmm. a quote-unquote weird sense but another yeah. weird another way similar along those lines and I, I think i told you this quote a second ago before we started recording and it was um what was the name of that that oh um, Nahewin or Nahewin, Nahewin yeah yeah that, that those siblings yeah they the cardinals the yeah. cardinals they had mentioned a a, a a quote from an elder indigenous elder who said we are not we are not stewarding the earth we are the earth stewarding herself mm-hmm. and it's kind of along those same lines right but yeah. it's interesting that yeah somehow as like this Western culture, we see ourselves as separate from it yeah. well, somehow and better than it and yeah. we need to manage it. And it's like, well, we do need to, like, mm-hmm. it's different now because there's so many people and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah, try and get to get back to that connection with nature is definitely, and especially for like like your culture, right? It's yeah. it's it's ingrained. It's part of it. So well, trying to get back to that and, and, and to, you know. Yeah. yeah, even for us, it comes to our language, right? Like our words for trees and um, and grass and things, it, it's it's an animate being to us. It's not something, you know, that's just there to us. It lives, it breathes, it mm-hmm. it has a heartbeat. And I think to some of the, you know, current studies that are going, because I know people hear that and they're like, oh my goodness, like this girl's crazy. But, <laughs> you know, coming from a scientific perspective and I was raised, you know, like I did my undergrad in geology and, you know, I so I can, I can see that perspective too. Well, you have your PhD, do you not? Yeah. But, yeah, so like you're, you're, yeah. you're in the scientific <laughs> community like you're this yeah. is not uh, like unbeknownst to you right so yeah so like i but i think like so we always would say like you know that trees have a heartbeat right mm-hmm. and but i think now they were just doing some different studies where they took kind of like you know video of the forest canopy and they could actually see that you know depending on where the sun is and other things that the trees actually kind of almost look like they're pulsing with like the leaves and how the branches move and mm-hmm. things and For me, I think like, you know, if someone was sitting there hunting, you know, and sitting in one place for a long time and just watching the forest around them, Mm -hmm. they could get that perception too, right? That 
And so we have like, even on my property, I have what I call grandmother trees. So these are trees that, you know, have been around and like, they're probably like, you know, 100, 150 years old. But, you know, to me, they know the landscape. They know what's, what's happened there. They're, they're holders of knowledge, right? And so when you look at tree rings, mm-hmm. you know, people study tree rings and look at the stories that trees tell. Dendrochronology. So, it's an entire exactly, field of study. Yeah. Exactly. But to yeah. me, that's that the tree's alive and it's trying to tell it, you know, and that's one way that the story of what happened to the tree can come out. And so, I think that that's one thing where we see ourselves as as different. So like when I go out with elders to burn or or people on the landscape, like they will look at the forest and see that it's unhealthy and then they feel bad themselves. Mm -hmm. Like I know for me when I go and I see something like that, like I feel like some people I hear saying like, oh, I I forest bath or this or that. Like that new thing where like, you know, you go spend time in nature. (laughs) But for me, it's like when I go and I'm in an unhealthy forest, no matter if I'm forest bathing or whatever, to me, it's not. And I feel that like you can feel from like, you just get like a sense, you know, that that things aren't well. And I think that that's something that, that we're missing is almost that emotions so when people are you know foresters go to the forest you know they see and i think it's from our training right you see like you know this the civiculture aspects yep. and you know tree heights and diameter and you know what's growing and ecology where yeah. the pine beetle or like you know yep. if, if there's beetle kill or whatever mm-hmm. instead of you productivity know productivity of the soil and the microbes in there and the, yeah but yeah. it's it's very scientific for sure yeah, yeah and it, and to us it's it's all connected right mm-hmm. so and i think most people now know that you know if you don't have healthy soil if you don't have water then you don't have trees and, and grass and if you don't have that you don't have animals and Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have animals and berries in water, you don't have us. So it's all connected, it's like, of course, right? Yeah. And yeah. I think that that's, you know, one thing that Indigenous people, you know, really can, like our knowledge can contribute a lot is is to, um, you know, understanding that and understanding the, the links, kind of like the web of life. Yeah. But not like I don't want people to think of it in like a, you know hippy dippy way because some people are just you know look at you and just say but we were at a conference and um like a fire conference Mm -hmm. and it was the fire continuum conference in missoula montana i think i told you this story but um all the talks were just very like you know here's us modeling fire here's us you know doing this but it was very like you know this is my job this is what you know i do these are the models i run and and um, so I, I was there with my Australian colleague, Trent, who was, it will be featured in our Good Fire podcast. And he was just, him and I were both just kind of had a hard time at the conference because we didn't seem to fit. Yeah. And we ended up doing a, a presentation together. And in our presentation, it was just about like the lack of emotion. Yeah. <laughs> like, so for us, when we see, when we talk about fire, it's connected to us. Like we feel it. And like one thing is I always, well, I shouldn't brag, but like, <laughs> you know, or like say, cause I sound crazy, but like I always try to make, when I tell stories, like people cry when I talk about fire and things. And you know, it's not like I want people to cry, but it's just because I think that they feel like this different perspective mm-hmm. to burning. So like one elder I was talking to from, uh, uh, Hoysen, which is Bridge River First Nation in, uh, BC. We were talking about burning and like his family hadn't been allowed to do it. So he remembers going out with his dad and he's now in his 80s, right? Yeah. And he said like when his dad died, they weren't allowed to burn. And he said that his dad was devastated by, um, you know, not being able to burn because mm. people don't realize like what a big deal it is to us and to our culture. Mm. So when we went there, we were doing this revitalizing cultural burning thing. And mm. like he started crying to me and saying like, you know, 
I want to go back on the land and burn like my daddy used to. And he's like, then I can die happy because my dad will know that, you know, I helped to bring our responsibility back to the land base. And I, so I think people, when they see that, you know, they're like, they, lots of people get into fire for like the adrenaline and the, you know, the excitement of getting a call and going out to the fire and, you know, or watching it burn Mm -hmm. towards a community. But for us, it's more of like a quiet relationship, I think. And just having that, like, uh, just being in the forest, you know? It's not a, it's not, yeah, you're right. It's not like what we see is like, oh, it's this cool thing that I do. It's Mm -hmm. like, no, this is part of my everyday like yeah. like we wake up and eat breakfast and and we go to our job mm-hmm. and we come home it's like mm-hmm. well, indigenous people mm-hmm. it seems like you know historically mm-hmm. you, you you everything you did yeah. was related to was related to breakfast and mm-hmm. was related to nature and was related to mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing a terrible job of explaining this but it no, was all it's, it's all it's all interconnected yeah. right in a very concrete way right yeah. like if you don't take care of the forest properly you're not eating breakfast yeah. because it's not there Right. So, and it's interesting explaining that culture and, and that cultural aspect of fire, right? Cause yeah. I don't think Western society, we don't think about it in that way. Yeah. And it's because we don't have that deep connection. Like, I mean, everyone, I say that I, I'm, I, you know, I dedicated mm-hmm. my life to nature and making sure yeah. that it's sustainable, but it's not the same mm-hmm. as I still go, I still, you know what I mean? I go home and watch mm-hmm. Netflix and, and, yeah. and we do too. Don't worry. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> But it's not, yeah. I, I guess, and like, yeah. well, and, and a lot of your life is, is, everyone's life is westernized to some extent now. It's like you can't For get away sure. from it at this yeah. point. But I think the point you're trying to make, it's kind of like trying to get as much of a traditional mm-hmm. indigenous culture back into the community so that they can be revitalized and healthy and yeah. feel part of the landscape again, right? Yeah, well, we, yeah. we call it like two-eyed seeing. So that's kind of the new concept that's come up. So that's like... Mm-hmm. You know, where as Indigenous people or even as non-Indigenous, like, you know, you're looking at the world through one eye, through your Western perspective, right? Because we're all trained in that, you know, like there's not, it's inevitable there's now. very few people that, you know, are born and raised in the bush and have that kind of only subsistence lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, but then out of the other eye, you know, you can see with your Indigenous eye, right? So you can see, you know, how you know, where things could be better. And I think for me, that's where fire management comes in. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I'm trained from the Western perspective. But I think, you know, from uh, like culture, that like, you know, there's things that Indigenous people do or know better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, part of my job is, you know, advocating for that and trying. So, you know, it's not saying like, Mm -hmm. drop all Western science around fire, right? We need that. We need that too. But then, indigenous people and our cultures also know ways you know for making the forest healthy so to me if you bring those two together it makes like you know what i mean it's then you have like an incredible um knowledge base that that you're coming from right yeah so i think like one example is like um talking to firefighters so there's this one guy who is a non uh like a non-indigenous firefighter so it's kind of funny up on the, you know, the fire crews there. Lots of that. There's like 30 or 40 year indigenous firefighters that have been on the fire line a long time. And they say, you know, these new kids like university grads come up and start telling them what to do. So this one guy was actually telling me that, he, you know, he started out of university as kind of a fire boss and went up on the the one line and he had these native crews. And he said he was the, he thought they were the laziest people in the world because he's like, they would get up in the morning and work a little bit, but then he's like, then they nap all day and then like in the in the bush, you know? Yeah. And then he's like, but then, you know, they would get up and kind of work all night. And then he's like, and then I started like really looking and 
and watching what they were doing. And he said that then one of the guys came up and told him, like, we fight the fire when it's the weakest because we see fire as a living being. And why would you fight something at the height of its day? You know, like at 2 p.m. on a really sunny, hot day with high winds, right? Like, why would you do anything, right? Like the fire can just jump or, you know, but if you, you know, fight it in the morning when it's the weakest or, or in the evening or overnight, when humidity is high and the temperature yeah. is low and so the activity is, yeah. Decrease, yeah. And every, mm-hmm. well, I should say generally now with climate change, who knows, but generally fire activity decreases at night, right? Yeah. So, so anyways, but that, these guys have got that not from textbooks, but from years of being out and watching fires. Mm. So I think, and so he was saying like, to me, like this not, um, non-Indigenous kid that, uh, that it was just amazing to see that because he didn't learn any of that in school. Mm-hmm. And so for him, he said he learned more that summer working with the native crews about fire than, um, you know, being, you know, going to school, basically. And not to say, you know, don't stay in school, kids, but like, (laughs) (laughs) because that's important too. But, you know, there's other ways and and other things to to learn as well about about fire. For sure. Yeah. I was lucky enough that when I did fire, my uh, Mm -hmm. my crew leader, uh, Sheldon Houle, an indigenous guy who's been fighting fire in like as a hell attack member okay. so in a very western way for i think mm-hmm. when i was there i think it was 10 or 15 years he'd been doing it yeah. but i remember from the very get-go mm-hmm. he he would tell me and the rest of our crew he'd be like if you guys ever get a chance to fight yeah. fire with an indigenous crew yeah like pay attention like watch yeah. like don't judge just pay yeah. attention because they know shit that you're never going to learn <laughs> yeah because like there's and it's true i remember mm-hmm. I remember noticing that like the similar things, right? Like they totally did things differently, yeah. 100%. And there was a lot of judgment there, yeah. right? But from when Sheldon came in and gave us that perspective and told us mm-hmm. like, just like talk to them. Like, yeah. trust me, they know yeah. way more than you do. Yeah. And like, just be confident that that's the truth, right? Yeah. And with, with time, you kind of build trust and you can talk to some of these people and like yeah. learn the way they do things. And it's, yeah, like the the, the they're not doing firefighting for a summer job yeah they're doing it because that's their way of like living in the yeah. summertime right and they, yeah. they've been doing this their entire life yeah. so it's like it's for yeah for for me as a university student exactly it was just like this cool adrenaline <laughs> rush like it was lots yeah. of fun i yeah. liked it it was cool but for them it was a totally different thing and it's uh yeah it was interesting yeah. to get that perspective i think i was lucky that way but yeah lots of the indigenous fire guys they always tell me one of the funniest things is like the when the fire season first starts and like in, in Cree, the word for white boy or whatever is <laughs> Mooniel. So they say like, oh, it's so funny when like the Mooniel come on the fire because he's like, they're all just doing selfies with the fire in the background. Yeah. And he's like, and we're all like, you know, actually working. And he's like, and you look and all the Mooniel are just lined up way away from the fire <laughs> taking selfies. Yeah. And then it was funny because then I started seeing on Facebook like lots of people yeah they do well on instagram yeah but i think that that's like just maybe a bit of and it's kind of more of like because for indigenous people it's more of a lifestyle right so they're they've been doing that that so it's it's um, a great career for indigenous people because they can go out Mm -hmm. in the summer make money be on the land and then in the winter they can go and like run their trap lines or hunt be with their families and like kind of participate in their their culture yeah so I think that that's why it's become like kind of a a, a nice lifestyle for, sure. um, for certain people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was something you said a little while ago, and it's been on my mind. I even wrote it down. Um, was it was like the healthy forest? Oh yeah, right. And could we maybe explain that a little bit? And because I think yeah. that depends on perspective, right? Yeah. Like it depends on what 
the definition of healthy forest is, right? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like from an academic perspective, but also yeah. from an indigenous perspective, because luckily you have both perspectives, which is yeah. pretty convenient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some days. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. What do you mean by healthy forest? Because mm-hmm. I think some people could say there's arguments that like we have too much old growth or we don't have enough old growth or yeah. we have too much shrub or not enough shrub or not enough grazing yeah. land or too much. So like, yeah. How, in your definition, do you define yeah. healthy forest? Because I think that's something that like some of the forest professionals listening might have, um, might want clarification on. As well. yeah. yeah. So I think for us, because we see it different, mm-hmm. um, like not as an economic thing, you know, but so for me, like, you know, for so, so to someone, a healthy forest might be like, you know, lots of like nice Douglas fir or something that, yeah. you know, they can make a lot of money off of or something, you know, they're growing healthy, but yeah. it's kind of a monoculture, right? For us, a healthy forest would be a forest that we can live off of. So um, lo- like the one Pierre Kruger, who's a firekeeper in Penticton Indian Band, he often talks about how like um, when you look out at the forest as an indigenous person, you see it almost as an orchard and a garden. Mm. So, you know, it's what's there naturally and what's growing. So instead of, you know, going and planting a garden or growing apple trees or something, you know, like you already kind of have that around you. So for every nation, what is a healthy forest would be different. Yeah. You know, depending on their culture. So when I, you know, some of the communities that I work with, they're fisheries nations, right? Mm-hmm. So they're focused on salmon runs and, uh. and other things, right? So for them, a healthy forest would be whatever um, promotes fishing, right? Or like, you okay. know, the, the growth of fish. Whereas, you know, in the north, you know, it's moose hunting in a lot of places, right? So it would be a forest that sustains moose. Oh, okay. So it kind of just depends, you know, on on what region that, that you're in. So it is still... So it's, it's not helpful. I know, like, you'd like to just say, you know, one that, you know, has... I think, like, overall, you would say, like, minimum undergrowth mm-hmm. um, and, and deadfall in the forest. And then, uh, you know, nice, big, kind of healthy trees and young ones coming up that are also healthy. So it is still mm-hmm. it is still a subjective uh, it is still mm-hmm. subjective to that community or it, the community's needs, right? It's yeah, a hundred percent. Okay, yeah. so it, it is still it's not mm-hmm. like it's uh, but the but the ultimate goal, I suppose, is sustainability for those needs over time. Yep. So similar to the Western culture, but just a different different needs, right? Yeah. So it's just so there's still that subjectivity there. Yeah, and, and still, it depends what the values are in yeah. the forest, right? Like so. Like with the fisheries, one thing that they like is when they burn um, mm-hmm. for those fisheries nations, they like to have like high smoke um, so production what do you burn from for burning. Like what would they do? Well, they would just burn their like um, kind of all the, the riverbanks and stuff. So any creeks, you know, they try and keep everything open. So what would that do? So, well, just to promote water, I guess, basically. And then also the temperature of the water. But then in the summer, like when it's really hot and when the fish are spawning, then they like to produce, to make fires because basically the smoke that goes up, um, especially in BC, right, it kind of stays in the valleys. Mm-hmm. Then it filters the UV, right? So it keeps the streams cooler so that the fishes can spawn. Yeah, so like Frank, well, in uh, Good Fire, our podcast, the Frank Lake <laughs> episode. Yeah. So Frank is, and Don Hankins too is another episode we do there. They're both kind of fisheries guys their nations are you know dependent on the the salmon run and things so they talk in detail about that and how Mm. you know they burn certain type of trees for high smoke yeah so yeah yeah, it just it really depends and it depends in every nation like that that you talk to so one of the nations that i work in that's you know moose hunters Mm. they are concerned about wood tick and how it kills or you know can um uh, impact moose mm-hmm. so they go and they burn um they basically burn meadows any any standing grass any kind of dead grass everywhere yeah 
because the, to kill wood tick and bring the wood tick down and they depend their intervals of burning on what they see in the wood tick mm. or in the in the moose like how they're being impacted right so like you know if the moose don't seem to be impacted by the wood tick then they just don't they don't burn it. until they start seeing signs and then they go and burn okay Okay. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Cause it's ultimately, yeah, like I said before, it's still about sustainability and yeah. like just making sure that these values are being hold, held on to over time. So it's, it's interesting the parallels between like how Western culture manages the forest and how the indigenous culture yeah. manages the forest. Cause yeah. there is, there are some parallels in that we're, we're all still managing for our own subjective needs mm-hmm. and desires. It's just interesting to see the difference yeah. between the two, right? Yeah. So a more holistic living in nature, therefore needing healthy forests for yep. X, Y, and Z. And then the more, uh, quote unquote, scientific kind of detached view where, yeah. and yeah, it's interesting to, mm-hmm. to to pick up on that kind of stuff. Well, the hard thing too is like that I think most indigenous people to understand um, like economics and like the world that we live in now, right? That we need forestry, that we, you know, that those things exist. I think that the frustration with them comes with, you know, big clear cutting or, mm-hmm. or other, you know, things. Cause then like for them that then eliminates like their berries, their medicinal plants, you know, to them, it damages the landscape for them too close, much. Close to home. Cause that's their, yeah. that's where they traditionally went to, to whatever, do mm-hmm. medicinal plant picking or whatever. And that changes the dynamic for 80 years until for it gets their, back or whatever. So yeah, even one was talking to me about yeah. like their fisheries and how like, if there's too many cut blocks, like even if, you know, there is a buffer, mm-hmm. it still to them changes the water flow, right? Mm-hmm. And how much sediment's in the water. For sure. So, Same thing that happens yeah. if a big burn goes through, right? Like mm-hmm. a, it, it, would, it, would have, it would have similar but different effects. It's going to change yeah. things, right? For sure. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's just, you know, and I don't want people to like to listen to this and think, you know, that we're saying like, you know, oh, stop all economic activity in the yeah. forest. Because I think everybody knows, you know, that that's kind of where we are now, mm-hmm. but it's doing it, you know, in a sustainable way that can, you know, work with, with, um, with nations and their needs too. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I think that the difficult thing is that like, there's not an easy fix, right? So almost like every territory that you're on, yeah. there's different reasons or different things that are important, right? Like, mm-hmm. Um, up in like the Silcatine right there, juniper is really important to them. Whereas down at a Shack and Indian band, it's sage. So, you know, it just kind of depends where you are and for what you're trying to promote. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> it really depends. No, totally. That all makes sense. And there's, yeah. so getting into that, I suppose, getting into the relationship between, um, industries that are managing the landscape in one way or another, let's say yeah. the forest industry, um, and the relationship with indigenous communities mm-hmm. and and, I know, and there's there's always been this uh trying to work together and, and come yeah. to common goals and 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 succeed together right yeah. however there's there is this you know what i mean there's a there's there's tension on both sides because the because the the I guess the goals are different yeah. and the, and we're, we're maybe not communicating properly. I'm not sure. I've never personally been a part of this process at all, yeah. but you hear it all the time from both sides that there's yeah frustrations, there's frustrations and, yeah. and, 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 and communication mm-hmm. falls apart. And then, and yeah. then there's emotion that takes things mm-hmm. out of everyone's hands and then it goes to whatever it gets blown out of proportion, right. In this weird way. Yeah. Um, and we're getting away from fire a little bit, but we can touch on this a, a little bit. And, yeah, you know, for sure. Um, it's all related. Yeah, it's all related <laughs> yeah. again, right? Yeah. So how how do you see 
us mending those relationships and making sure that both the Western culture and indigenous cultures can, because like we're, we're both here to stay, yeah. right? Like we're not going anywhere. Yeah. So we have to anticipate that this is going to be the case. Yeah. So how do we learn to live together in a, in a, in a very productive way for both yeah. communities and make sure that we're not misunderstanding each other and yeah. getting frustrated with one another because that's, I mean, that's human nature, right? Like, yeah. I mean, you look at any political spectrum and it's just, it's chaos on both sides. But if you sit two people down that mm-hmm. are at complete odds with one another in the po- politics spectrum, yeah. you sit them down at a table over a cup of coffee and they're going to find out that their views aren't that far apart and mm-hmm. where they're disagreeing is, they're, you know what I mean? It's small differences in how do we get to this economic prosperity or whatever. So I think it's, yeah. I think there's, from my uneducated perspective when it yeah. comes to this, it seems like there's a lot of miscommunication. And how do you think we build that communication so that both parties can exist? And more importantly, mm. I think, because Western culture has taken such a like advantage of indigenous communities over, you know what I mean? Look back yeah, at residential schools them. and like you were saying, mm-hmm. all kinds of different stuff that we talked about at the when we mm-hmm. first came or colonizers first came over. Um, how do we promote what is a damaged indigenous culture that needs support mm-hmm. yep. right to get back on its feet yeah well the one thing i always hear you know is like people always say oh you need to engage with the indigenous communities and and well like to me that's a nice concept i know that lots of non-indigenous people or companies get frustrated because you know they go to these communities and try to engage and nobody turns up or you mm-hmm. know they can't get a hold of anybody nobody returns their calls And so I think for me, like the thing to remember with that is, you know, for people to remember that um, for like First Nations are under the the Indian Act. Right. So basically all their resource and, and, you know, how their capital for how they're run all basically is decided in in Ottawa almost, you know, Mm -hmm. and how much money comes down to them. So most of the times, you know, even though the communities have high capacity, um, you know, for forestry or other things, it's often very underfunded because yeah. of what comes down the stream from Ottawa. Yeah. Um, so basically there's not enough money, right? So they, you know, might not have a forestry coordinator. They might not have a lands person or, yeah. you know, or the chief might be like that, you know, the chief has to manage housing, healthcare, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, everything like you can. So I know people get frustrated, but at the same time, I think, you know, there's, it needs to be a bit of patience and understanding there. Mm-hmm that lots of the nations are, are trying as, mu- as much as they can. And some are great. Like there's some nations, you know, that have really gone into forestry there, you know, the community forests in BC. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that those are a really great example of things that are working well. Or I know there's been partnerships like between um, different like forest industries and indigenous nations too. Yeah. So I think that like the thing for me is always like the value finding, right? So you need to sit down at the table. And like, I know that you were saying like about the, um, you know, objectives are so different, but lots of times like the values are the same, right? Like uh-huh. most forestry people don't go into forestry because they want to, you know, kill all the trees <laughs> and everything, right? right? They go into it because they love being in the forest, right? So they want to sustain that. Most indigenous people love being in the forest, right? So right there you have a match of, yeah. you know, so then it almost goes to, well, then, you know, if these are our shared values, how then can we, you know, move forward together? Uh-huh. But I think one of the problems is that, there's a real lack of trust because there's been a lot of people that have taken advantage of indigenous communities. So, you know, come in and said good things, said all the right things, and then, you know, ended up taking money and, you know, not involving the nation. And Mm -hmm. so 
it, it take it can take a while. I think like a helpful thing too is employing indigenous people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you make or want to work in a certain nation or with them, you know, to employ people from that band mm -hmm. and give them, you know, a sustainable, you know, yeah. career. And there's lots of indigenous people that actually have forest um, tech diplomas and other things yep. that, that can do that. So I think... You know, I, and I know it's it's not easy either. I don't want people to think like, oh, yeah, you just sit at a table and no. decide your values and then yeah. everything goes away. But I think like in the, so with UNDRIP, like the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, you know, I know that's in the Senate right now, but that's about, you know, consent and First Nations having consent over anything that happens in their territory. Mm -hmm. So I think like depending on whether that passes, but it seems, you know, like we're moving that way. Yeah. So I think it's something that forest companies need to realize that it's it's in the future, mm -hmm. you know? I think they do. So, like, yeah. From my perspective, I think like they're always aware of this, but I don't yeah. think any of them ever have the toolbox yeah. to understand how to do it properly. Yeah. Or, or you know what I mean, or they're just like, I know, I know of a few examples yeah. where mm -hmm. there's great communication and they're doing well and they're, and they're, and they're prospering together, yeah. right? That, that does exist and it's happening. But, um, I think I think again, like you were saying, like the the, the values are the same, and that we want sustainability. Yeah. And it's just it's the it's the past, the historic tensions that are there, mm -hmm. and both are coming from two totally different perspectives yeah. that they don't recognize that it's the same values, right? Yeah. And it's and whatever. But I think like mm -hmm. all the forest communities since like you know what I mean. I don't know how long, but for you know for decades now yeah. have been trying to very much engage in the indigenous community and try and get this started. But I think. There's been a lot of mm -hmm. not success, yeah, because of these challenges, right? Yeah, well, and even and, like I go, you know, and I go to communities. Most of them have like an indigenous or um, an economic development officer or like a, you know, um, mm -hmm. a corporation kind of. And it's interesting to watch like the parade of people coming in to talk to them, yeah. Because that's what I would say is that everyone almost seems to want a piece, yeah. and I think that that gets frustrating for yeah. Indigenous people, you know, to kind of constantly have that. But there needs to be, um, you know, I think you need to to recognize, you know, if you want to do this kind of work, that there has to be some kind of benefit for the community as a whole as well, mm -hmm. whether that's, you know, monetarily or, you know, supporting like a recreational forest or, yeah. you know, something. Yeah, to kind of come to that. I don't like there's not, I think, an, an easy answer for, you know, no. like just do this one step and, you know, indigenous not. people will love to work with you. But for me, I think that forestry really has an advantage over, say, like the oil and gas industry, mm -hmm. because I think that there's many more shared values or like I think the worldview of an indigenous person and a forester is much more similar. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that that's kind of exciting almost. And, you know, a something kind of a future. And I've seen like a bunch of nations now, you know, are opening their own little sawmills and other things. Yeah. And to me, that's like exciting. So because it has to do with the housing crises we have, right? Mm -hmm. So they want to be able to, you know, harvest their own wood to build their own homes, which yeah. I mean, why we aren't doing that, I have no idea. <laughs> but yeah. like, you know, instead of shipping in yeah. um, as wood and timber and stuff. So I think, yeah, there's unfortunately, there's not like a really easy answer. But I would say like the biggest thing is, you know, to be genuine and patient and then understand that history, you know, that the situation that you're coming into, because lots of people get like a, um, I don't want to say white savior because that sounds really bad, but you know, it's kind of like, oh, I'm going to go to the community and help them or, you know, like, yeah, yeah. and I think the problem is that there's a revolving door of these, you know, white saviors or people <laughs> that, you know, are coming to save them and like, yeah. um, 
even like if you go to a First Nation conference, like there's just kind of business people all over the place trying to sell the chiefs on different ideas and different different things. So yeah, it's almost kind of being becoming trusted in the community. And then also working long term. And that's something that, you know, our especially in government, like we don't really support because, you know, everyone kind of wants to climb the ladder in government. Yep. Whereas, you know, the most trusted people are generally the ones from the community who've been in the community the longest. Yeah. And that's generally who like an indigenous person would trust. Yeah. So, yeah, it's almost like doing these relationships long term, too. And I think there's some great examples out there yeah. of things that are, are going really well. Yeah. Oh, no, there totally is. I just yeah. want to see, because mm-hmm. I think we've seen for so long that like yeah. a struggling indigenous population yeah. when it comes to like mm-hmm. defining their own culture and, and, and finding their own sustainability within their own yeah. nations and, and that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And having that autonomy, but also working with Western culture. And, and I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're lumping all indigenous people together here, which is obviously not, obviously not, yeah, not yeah, good totally, either, yeah. but it's, um, mm-hmm. but there, there's similar problems and issues. And I would say lots yeah. of that does come from like that funding issue, you know, that sometimes they just don't have enough money. And then also other times, you know, we're dealing with lots of issues that have been brought on by colonization, right? So like if you're dealing with a suicide crisis in your community, you're not really going to care about forestry, right? right? And so I hear people say that too, like to me sometimes about, you know, when I talk about how we're stewards of the environment, they'll say to me like, have you ever been on a reserve and looked at like, you know, there's garbage everywhere and, you know, and people don't care about their houses and like that's hardly an environmental steward. Mm. And to me, that's colonization, right? Like that's where where we've gone and where we've been pushed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, moving forward, it's kind of like re like regaining our culture back. And so that's like where to relate it to burning. <laughs> that's yeah. we're burning in those things because burning for us is a cultural practice, right? Yeah. And so I think by getting fire back on the landscape, by kind of making our forest healthier, mm-hmm. you know, then that promotes a healthier community. Yeah. So you know, instead of kids sitting inside you know they're out on the land and like what kid doesn't like fire right oh totally (laughs) so they're out with their (laughs) elder like burning and and anyways there's neat things like even just showing kids like how smart their ancestors were like the one elder um that i was talking to was telling me about how drip torches actually came from first nations people which i didn't know oh i thought that this was like yeah so please explain (laughs) (laughs) so what they used to do was like and i'm probably gonna butcher it so go talk to an elder about how they used to do this but so they used to use certain types of bark and then pitch or sap from different types of trees. So, and it, oh, it was yeah. very specific. So it had sap to, has, uh, we, mm-hmm. I had Kelly Harlton on, he was talking about if you can, you can, if you can get yeah. sap yeah. to light, like once it's been hardened into that, yes, what do yeah. you call it? Um, like a crystal almost or something? Yeah, it's, or, yeah. It's, he, had a, he had a good word for it, Am- amber. Oh, amber. Once it's okay, become yeah. amber, so it's a yeah. hard piece of sap. If yeah. you can get that to light and it's hard to get it to light, but once yeah. it does light, it yeah. turns into napalm. Yeah. Right. And so that makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what they they would use. Like, and I can't remember they had, you know, certain types. So I think it was like a birch branch and then you would wrap it in some type of bark Uh and then to make like kind of like a, you know, almost like a a tiki torch or that kind of thing. And then same thing, they would take and harden sap, but then they would put like other types of sap around it. So it was very like... um, you know, the type of procedure, you know, you had to do certain things and then you would light that like first layer of sap and it would start dripping fire. Right. And then as you walked along, you would, so yeah, they like people saw that, you know, like an indigenous people burning that way. 
And then, you know, it's like, oh, well, that's cool. Well, why don't we do it this way? And now know, we just like, use a mixture of gas and diesel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. So, but I think like that, to me, that's neat because you take kids out there yeah. and you show them like, well, you know, drip torches came from your, you know, and, and, that's and super cool. And yeah. even like kids had jobs on fires, right? So, oh man, I actually heard this fantastic quote that almost made me cry the other day from this guy in Australia. And he was saying for them, burning is such a family affair. And actually, that's what I hear too from all of our, the people I've talked to here is that, you know, it wouldn't just be the men that would go out and burn. It's the entire family. Mm -hmm. And the kids, like one thing they would do is um, pick up like pine cones and, you know, light them on fire and then from the fire and then throw them, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's like awesome for kids. And I know like there's fire managers probably listening to this saying, oh my goodness, they're going to burn down the forest. (laughs) Please do not do this if you are just a kid listening and want to start throwing flaming balls of fire. Don't do that. Yeah, Yeah. but this was obviously under the direction of elders and, you know, also burning at like very low risk times right like this was not in the heat very controlled yes but so you know it's to give the kids a job on the fire and the one guy from australia was saying that for his mob that for them it was bringing children's laughter back to the forest because the trees hadn't heard the children laugh in a long time Mm -hmm. and they felt that that was needed for the trees to be healthy too Mm -hmm. and i mean that kind of relates like obviously children's laughter does not you know directly affect the tree <laughs> but it's more that like if people are out on the land stewarding it right yeah. then that promotes health for the he- the health of the trees right. so anyways to me that was such a beautiful like quote because i think too often you know we kind of remove remove that or remove kind of the the community uh-huh. well yeah. it's connecting the, it's connecting i think from my perspective for totally outside again the indigenous perspective yeah. bringing that laughter back in is kind of like an it's just it's it's adding to the health of the community yeah right which is it, you know what i mean it's building a sense of community we're doing this together we're you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's that, it seems yeah. like to me, that's, that's well, super beneficial. Yeah. yeah. And that's what Saul Sanderson, he's an elder from Saskatchewan. And he was telling me that like one of the problems with, or issues we're having with our nations right now is, you know, from that, you know, the legacy of, cult, of, you know, residential schools where we felt like we, you know, our knowledge didn't matter. And it almost made us like hate ourselves and hate everyone around us. Mm-hmm. And so I was telling you that story about on the, if you want to know more about that, there's like the truth and reconciliation. If you go on YouTube, there's testimony of survivors. And I was listening to one and the woman was talking about how the worst thing about residential schools was she went from like a kid at three who loved her mom and dad and thought the world of them to coming home at, you know, 12 and hating her parents, like thinking that they were the world's worst things. Like they didn't know anything, you know, how dare they talk. And then she anyways got into problems with drugs and alcohol because she had no parents or anything, yeah. you know, and, and no didn't, support system anymore. Yeah, and yeah. didn't approve, you know, didn't believe her parents' opinion anyways, because they were worthless human beings and, or not even humans, right? Savages. And so he was saying to me that like lots of those issues and things, it's, like the suicide problems, the alcohol and drug addiction, like it's like if you think of a tree, so those are kind of all the branches of the problems, but there's a real core or like the root of the problem. So lots of times we are, we're addressing all these branch symptoms instead of the actual real problem, which is totally. like a loss of culture and knowledge. Oh, yeah. So to me, burning comes into that. And I know people think like, oh, it's just like burning a forest, like, or, you know, yeah. burning the understory. It's not a big thing, but, you know, it's getting people out on land. It's telling them how much their ancestors knew about forests, how well they manage the forest, how they were able to live in like very difficult conditions through that knowledge base that they had. Mm-hmm. 
And, um, and then, you know, having them practice it and try and bring it back and, and be valued, like, especially when like, you know, fire managers or, you know, firefighters come and watch these burns and they're like, wow, that's cool. Like, you know, I, you know, I didn't know you could, you know, do that or use a rake that way or this and that. And then like, they see then that these white people are valuing their family. Right. And so to them too, that's just like that kind of sense of pride. Yeah. And so I think to me that that's like not only in burning, but in lots like language and other things, right, that we can bring back like that, the importance of culture to our communities. It's a tough one to try and get across to people myself. I don't yeah. understand it, right? Like I try to sympathize with it and try to get yeah. what you're like, what you're saying. Yeah. And like, I think, I feel like I'm starting to get it over the course of like whatever eight episodes Ten podcasts, yeah. we, we did together, Come on, Matt. talking with different people, but <laughs> yeah. I still, I still don't know firsthand, right? Yeah. Is what I'm saying. And yeah. to try to convince people who are outside of this culture the importance of this, right, to help healthy Indigenous communities become healthy Mm -hmm. and prosperous again in a way that they can, you know what I mean, support themselves in a way they haven't been able to in the last hundred years um, because of X, Y, and Z. All yeah. the, all, you know what I mean? All the historical trauma and, and, and all that kind of stuff, right? But it was yeah. like you were saying, right? Like we, it, it, it seems like up until this point, a lot of what we've been doing has been treating the symptom, yeah. not the problem. Like, I mean, you talk to anybody that yeah. has anything to do with helping addicts, right? Yeah. The problem isn't that they're addicted to drugs. That's a symptom. The problem is they have a severe amount of trauma that they're trying to hide with drugs. Same with alcoholics, yeah. right? Yeah. Like it's... it's it, alcoholism isn't the problem Mm -hmm. it's a symptom of the problem you have to fix the trauma and fix the brain before you know what i mean so it's it's so before you can even address that yeah yeah, before you can even Mm -hmm. address that part of it because otherwise they're just trying to Mm -hmm. they're just trying to cope right it's a coping mechanism and i think we've kind of seen and i don't know if that's an offensive comparison but what i'm saying is like it's it it seems like the indigenous community Mm -hmm. has has been so traumatized in a massive way and to yeah. just expect them to pull, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps is yeah. is absurd. It's crazy talk, right? Yeah. Like it's well, just, it's not my grandmother happen. went to residential school and up in Lacklebish area, and mm-hmm. she, I mean, wouldn't even talk about it. What happened to her there? But she was so traumatized, I guess, by what happened is that she moved her family so that they wouldn't have to go. To, her children wouldn't have to go to that school, and so she could be there. So. Yeah. She, you know, took her kids to the, the, they moved up to Fort McMurray. So she took her kids to the school up there every single day, you know, to make sure that they were getting care. But then she became an alcoholic and actually died very young, like falling down a flight of, of stairs, um, drunk. And so, and then, you know, my family is full of alcoholics and drug addicts. And I think that it's just from that because, you know, then she wasn't there to properly, you know, raise her kids, which then, you know. And led to other people and yeah. yeah so i i think like a good example too is like of kind of like i guess well-meaning people like forestry people but you know that where it doesn't come across so great is like for bringing back cultural burning right so lots of nations now want to bring back burning and mm-hmm. so on our like the reserves we're technically allowed to burn right because that's um the you know the band well, land, it's federal yeah. jurisdiction, but, you know, the ban kind of has a bit of control over it. So, you yeah. know, that you don't need provincial permission to do that. So, you know, lots of agents, fire management agencies say, you know, oh, we're so supportive of Indigenous people and we want to help them, you know, yeah. you know, support their practices, you know, until we say, you know, we want to burn <laughs> something. Nice, and yeah. so, you know, what I've seen even, you know, in BC is where I'm doing a lot of work right now because the nations there are so passionate about burning. But you know, they, they're going into these meetings and it's, you know, like a really complicated process to get prescribed burning on the ground. And it's, 
very Western based. You know, you have to know like uh, fuel types that are yeah. out there. That's and, the culture we live in now, right? Yeah. So of course it's going to be that kind of mm-hmm. bureaucracy. Yeah, it's like a yeah. crazy 12 step process. And most of the communities look at that and just say, you know, we'll screw this. We're burning ourselves, you know. Mm-hmm. And then even when they want to burn, like I've heard of lots, you know, where somebody sees smoke and then, you know, calls the, you know, calls yeah. the emergency number and then, you know, a helicopter will just come and put out their fi- their little fire that they're burning, right? Yeah. Without, you know, coming and dropping down and maybe talking to the people or, or seeing what's going on. So there's a bit of a, a disconnect. And I can see it from both sides, right? Because especially in BC, like the fires has been so crazy mm-hmm. that I think, you know, the BC fire management or wildfire service there, you know, obviously doesn't want out of control fires. Yes. But the nations there want to burn. And so what I'm seeing right now is because they're, they're just like smashing heads, basically. Mm. You know, like they're supportive until mm. we want to burn. And because of that smashing of heads is that now the nations are saying like, well, screw you. This is our territory. We're doing what we want. Yeah. You know, and then like it becomes like this real conflict situation. Yeah. So I'm hoping, you know, that, you know, working together, we can do that. And we're trying to work with like the agency and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe even introduce some sort of like cultural burn protocol or procedure you know that's more indigenous based that same thing like you're kind of getting permission you know you're notifying the correct authorities but it's not as crazy as this like existing process well i think that's and we've just again it's another thing we've discussed a bit on the on the other episodes we did that Yeah. yeah the good fire podcast but talking about that that's another big barrier to indigenous burning or cultural burning um however you want to call it is the like the Western barriers on that. Cause like, you're right. We don't want out of control fires. Yes, so yeah. the Western, like the Western government, like we, we want to make sure that like any fire that is started is not going to become a problem for yeah. anything outside of the, the, uh, the reserve or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, um, but also at the same time, recognizing mm-hmm. that like you like you were saying, mm-hmm. indigenous people have been working with fire for thousands of years and understand mm-hmm. the relationship. So how do you make sure that, government feels comfortable yeah with this going on but mm-hmm. also ensuring that because it's entirely possible also like this is something that somebody who's playing devil's advocate would say right yeah. is just saying that like well how do we ensure that they know what they're doing because it could yeah. be somebody who just because they're indigenous doesn't mean they know what's going on right they have to have that knowledge passed down and, and collected somehow yeah and no could, i've heard that all the time like right. oh if we allow this the indians are going to be lighting fires everywhere and like be, yeah know? exactly right and then that and, kind of fear yeah right so there's that fear mm-hmm. of will they take advantage of this and just do it for fun or whatever? And that exists. So we have to address that fear. So how do we, Mm -hmm. there's going to have to be a collaboration somehow Mm -hmm. to be like, okay, we acknowledge that like these four people somehow, unfortunately that's the way it's going to have, I think it's probably going to have to go that Mm -hmm. these four people in this band have the knowledge and they have to be like, I don't know. And this is super Westernized of me to think, right? Like these people have the the knowledge and the understanding of how to do this. So if they're in charge, we're we're not going to worry about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I feel like, but I also feel like indigenous communities having to talk to the overlord, the government (laughs) about what they're doing on their own land is, is counter is exactly the opposite of what you're trying to accomplish here. Yeah. And so that's like, so, you know, like there's fire boss training, right? Like that you go or no burn boss training. So there's like different levels of that. You can go through same thing. It's very Western. Like I know that now, like there's Bob Gray and other guys who train on that, who are starting to incorporate a bit of indigenous knowledge or, 
you know, the importance of indigenous knowledge and burning, but same, it's very like kind of Western, you know, this is how we light a prescribed fire. And And that's all we know. That's the only culture I know, right? (laughs) So it's where my perspective is going to come from. Yeah. So then we thought like, okay, well, like, you know, we were doing brainstorming with some of the fire keepers and we're like, you know, well, they do a certification course to get that. So maybe what we need to do then is have a cultural burning certification course, right? So that, you know, people would go through and then once they get that, then, you know, they can go and and a light fires or whatever. But then we, then we had a lot of fire keepers that were saying like, no, that is basically just us trying to fit into a Western system. Right. And they were saying like the one guy actually at the fire keepers conference I just went to, he, the government people were talking and he stood up and he just said, you know, I find this really difficult because they're talking about, you know, like all the procedures you need to go through to get approval. And, and they're trying to do what they think is right. They're yes. Oh, to yeah. Be and very nice people too, right. you know, and being there and, you know, they're yeah. trying and they were saying like, you know, we'll work with you to get fire on the ground. We'll do anything. But he, he stood up and he just said, you know. For me, this is my family's, like my nation's inherent right to steward the land. This is my responsibility. This is why I was put on this earth. You know, so for me then to have to go and ask you for permission Mm -hmm. to do what is my responsibility Mm -hmm. and my right, that doesn't make any sense. And then he was saying like, you know, a hundred years ago, you guys were telling us we couldn't burn because we were destroying the forest. And now you're saying to us, oh, only we can burn because, you know, you got, you know, yeah. <laughs> because now the forest is destroyed. And he's like, you're the ones, you know, whose practices, because you wouldn't listen to us, you know, have led to this. If you would have listened to my ancestors, you know, then we wouldn't be in this predicament we're in now. So like, let us kind of take it over. So I think it's one of those like, I don't I I don't really like that term like wicked issue, you know, where it's like super complex, but yeah. it is kind of like that in a way, right? Because you like you're worried the forest isn't healthy right now. I don't personally want to say to somebody like, yeah, go out and burn and then have, you know, a massive ground fire yeah. start. But I think the thing is with indigenous fire practice is that it's you know, you're burning at very specific times. So, you know, it's like early spring before the snow is left in Canada. It's late fall, just like the day or two before the first snowfall, right? You're not burning like obviously in the summer. So like I would think that that, you know, obviously still should be criminalized to some extent, you know, that you need to find people or whatever that are just going because that is very high risk. And so like what our... um, like elders and ancestors say from like the different nations that I've talked to is that, you know, our burning that we do is so low risk. That's why we don't need protective equipment. That's why we don't need a burn plan because if we're doing it right, you know, (laughs) there's, there's literally very low or zero risk. Mm -hmm. Well, I I think they would say zero risk to what they're doing, you know, to starting an out of control fire or somebody getting hurt. Mm -hmm. So it's hard though, like because I oh, can is, see, even yeah. Prescribed burns for the most part, if they're not mm-hmm. too, if they're not to fight a current existing wildfire, yeah. Prescribed burns are generally done at the same time that you're talking about, right? Yeah. Late fall, early spring, yeah. When the winds are down, humidity's high, and they can keep it, yeah, c- under control. Yeah, but said, they're usually trying to start crown like a bigger fire, right? Well, depending, yeah, yeah, so, that's, well, yeah. Like a lot of times, it's just it's just there's doing grass stuff to reduce fire hazard around a town or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Or, but yeah, or like in, in the par- national parks, they'll be yeah. yeah, they want to light up a hill of pine because it's totally yeah. dead, beetle like, killed, yeah, yeah. and they want to light it up so that it doesn't turn into an uncontrolled fire and tear it up. But yeah, there's lots of reasons for it. Yeah. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is like because it is fire, it can get out of hand, right? And I guess. 
like like you were saying, so because I, I don't know the answer to this, yeah. so I'm trying to. How do you propose that we get cultural burning back on the landscape in yeah. a way that satisfies like the indigenous need, yeah, as well as doesn't freak out us <laughs> spazzes on the western side, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> you worry more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like, how does how do you because the reality is we're all people we all mistakes yeah. happen and yeah. like shit will ha- shit can happen yeah. right inevitably with fire if you do yeah. rent enough fires one of them's gonna get away well and yeah there's elders that almost every elder tells me you know about a story about a fire that got away. yeah and it happens yeah. so how do we how do we cr- create this system yeah. of confidence between two communities that are mm-hmm. very different yeah but have similar goals mm-hmm how do like I don't know I don't even know how to ask this question but yeah. you, you see understand what I'm saying right no like, <laughs> totally so it's hard and I think like the the thing is I don't have an answer either which isn't helpful at all but like I think so that's one thing with the good fire podcast to plug us again <laughs> is that you know we kind of go through by talking to people in different jurisdictions and how they handle the problem mm-hmm. so like in Australia we talked to like Oliver Costello who's from like the fire sticks alliance and he talks there about how they've removed um, like prescribed burning or burning. Now they call it a cultural practice that they're doing. So then they don't fall under burning regulations. Uh, yeah. So remember he talks about that in detail mm, and how whatever, they yeah. kind of, yeah, use that. And then Trent and Tim, like they're down, they have the Federation of Traditional Landowners mm-hmm. in uh, the state of Victoria and Australia. And there they're actually writing up like a protocol on cultural burning. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it, and like in Canada, actually, I think, so one thing we're doing is we're, we're doing an Indigenous Fire Smart booklet that'll be coming out in the fall, um, of 2019. And so in that, you know, we're looking at Indigenous knowledge about fire, but then at the same time, how can we be fire smart, mm-hmm. you know, and not, uh, you know, do the best for our communities and for the forest. And it's actually being written by all Indigenous authors by across the country. That's and awesome. yeah, it has Indigenous peer reviewers and will have Indigenous <laughs> art in it. So I think like, that can maybe start and then we also are starting an indigenous fire management working group that also will be at a national level okay so looking at these things and you know how can we start moving like i was talking to um one of the chiefs uh from out in bc i'm just trying oh chief ron ron ignace and he was telling me that after the fires happened, they were really concerned about mushroom pickers coming onto their territory. Uh, and yeah. so he said that what he did was he went through like all the laws and regulations in Canada. And he found out that there's no law that actually controls the understory. So what he did was they declared that the understory is their um, territory mm-hmm. in uh, for their nation. Right. And so that way they could control the mushroom picking. Mm-hmm. So they basically, you, uh, you might have seen like those signs that they put up that said like, you know, you can't come on into our territory unless you have permission. And he was saying that they hauled out like um, they put up out like, you know, porta potties and stuff and hauled out like thousands of gallons of human waste that would have, you know, been strewn across their territory. And so his, I was talking to him because I'm like, hmm, I wonder how that would work for fire. Wait, can you explain? I don't, I don't mm-hmm. understand the, yeah. the, 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 the waste thing. That would house us. What was that about? Well, because all the mushroom pickers come, like thousands of them, hey, oh, to get saying- the morel mushrooms, right? And they camp and on the territory and then pick all summer, right? Oh. And make like a lot of money off of the mushrooms that, that okay. grow after. Yeah, so 
before like they would just random camp right oh, and like kind of you know yeah, yeah literally just shit go everywhere yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. and so they were concerned because of how many people were coming in oh, I see. and like and lots of times too they'll abandon their campsites and other things so mm-hmm. they put like dumpsters up they put porta potties they mm-hmm. and they kind of tried to control it and the province actually got behind them and helped support them mm-hmm. on that and so i was saying to him like you know how will that would that work for fire mm-hmm. because you know what we want to burn is the understory and his response to me was let's do it because he's like you know he's the kind of guy and i think that this is where a lot of chiefs are going is like this is our inherent right to do and you know you can try like you know bring a lawsuit charge me you know and then we'll go to court and we'll interesting protest for sure and we'll see who wins Mm -hmm. because his feeling is that you know through indigenous inherent rights and undrip and and other things that you know that basically he won't you know he'll that you you can't do anything about it basically like you know at a legal level right because it's it's their territory they feel so yeah. but as like, long as it doesn't get out of hand and then mm-hmm. be, and gets out of the reserve and then all of a sudden they, they have a lawsuit on the yeah reserve but they they argue whatever right? but there's a difference for us between our, the reserve which to us is where we were forced by government right mm-hmm. and um and then our territory right so no, like, of course, I'm yeah. not questioning. I'm just saying. I'm, I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm just saying, like yeah. from a legal Western perspective, like, yeah. they have, they mm-hmm. could have grounds, and like I, I yeah. would worry that you, yeah. you don't want to put the like that community in a risky situation. Mm-hmm. Just for a protest or what? But I don't know. I yeah. again, I should. But even again, be. <laughs> yeah, no. But I know what you mean. But to me, like the burn should be like incredibly low risk, right? Like not to get out of hands like that. Yeah, Yeah. But then at the same time, like there, so for him, it wouldn't be like only burning on his reserve, right? It would be burning anywhere in their nation's territory. Right. So, and I think Traditional territory from like before colonialization, yeah. Yeah, so I think that that's kind of where the hard thing comes in because um, forestry people and government folks see that as crown land, right? Mm-hmm. But most indigenous people don't recognize crown land. They think that that's their, you know, their territory. Yeah. yeah. And so that's like where all the legal stuff comes that's in. That's what right? I'm saying. So yeah, I, that's what I'm getting at. How do we how do we navigate that mm-hmm. that issue, right? Because that's it's yeah. it's 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 a real issue that exists, right? Like yeah. we all feel like, oh, it's crown land, it's public land, like it's yeah. it's shared by all of us. But then indigenous communities also feel like, well, like we've been doing this successfully for thousands of years and we yeah. have like we should have rights to continue to practice our culture the way we always have. Yeah. And to not be restricted by, mm-hmm. you know, Western civilization. So like how do we yeah, like just it's, it's a crazy hard, yeah. Cause yeah, like you you wanna because now that there are both cultures living mm-hmm. on this landscape, mm-hmm. you you do want to protect both sides of it. Like you don't want to allow I don't know, like, there's, you have yeah, to protect all the values at the same time, right? Well, and I think that's why it's really important to start to work together and to, like, kind of do this two-eyed seeing and to, because, like you said, they're, both cultures are here now, yeah. and it's going to be very, and so to, for me, for for Indigenous people, like, and myself, to get fire back on the landscape, a much easier approach is, you know, to work um with partners like yeah. wildfire management agencies, forestry companies to get fire back on the ground, right? Yeah. Rather than like, you know, go into some big legal yeah. fight with, with succeed, everybody. Because, so Yeah, like it might yeah. make a statement, but it also mm-hmm. is just going to embolden both sides. Yeah. Well, and of, everyone just gets their backs up at each other then, yeah. right? Like, so yeah. we, we need to get to a round table where everyone's talking, communicating and working this out over time, yeah. right? And just discussion, discussion, discussion constantly. And it's... Yeah. But, but yeah, it's 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 a difficult because you, you don't mm-hmm. want to step on the rights and like of indigenous people, but mm-hmm. you also there's there's uh, whatever thirty million 
non-indigenous people living in yeah. this country now so it's like how yeah. do we well it's a lot i would say the one thing it's a lot easier in the north <laughs> because right like, there's nobody up there it's mostly indigenous people <laughs> yeah. so like up there you know it's not a big deal but like if you're say penticton indian band mm-hmm. right like their territory is basically where a lot of albertans and stuff go and people have million dollar summer homes and they don't necessarily want to be smoked out or, or put what they would say is is at risk, yeah. right? So I think for me, like that's what I'm hoping with this Indigenous Fire Working Group because we've never had something like this in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know too, like, you know, we don't obviously wouldn't be speaking for all nations or anything like that. But it's to me, it's to bring fire, Indigenous fire people from across Canada just to start looking at maybe potential solutions yeah. for things and, and how we can work together and work with agencies and stuff, you know, to do this. Because for me, like for agency, Mm -hmm. um, for fire management agencies, like Indigenous people are such an amazing partner to get fire back on the ground. Mm Because I know in some areas it's like, oh, well, you know, everyone's, the population is concerned about smoke. But if you can say like, you know, we are supporting such and such nation Mm -hmm. in their like cultural practice of burning, Mm -hmm. you know, it gets a lot of public support a lot quicker. So to, I think to me, that's something that, that we need to take advantage of as fire management people, you know, to, it's just, it's an, an easy, an easy win in that way. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. It's just, yeah, yeah it's, it's amazingly how complicated, or it's amazingly, mm-hmm. it's amazing how complicated the situation is to try and navigate this. But I think, yeah, the only way forward is to come together yeah. and have these discussions. Right? Well, and there's some... It seems like a cop out to say that because it's just like, yeah. like, we need to discuss it. <laughs> but like, unfortunately, that's the truth. And it, yeah. yeah. Well, and on the Good Fire podcast, I think like that's what's interesting is because with the range of people that we talk to on there, like, you know, you go from somebody who thinks, you know, like it's their right to burn and they're not working with any agency and then to like other people who you know are employed like me kind of by an agency yeah like frank lake you know he works for u.s forest service and he's used his you know work within this kind of western government structure to bring more fire back to his territory so yeah it's just it's really interesting to see kind of all the different perspectives yeah and it seems like we're heading mm-hmm. like we have to head towards some kind of true collaboration in you know what i mean like yeah. it's not going to be unfortunately like the, it's not going to be pure like traditional indigenous culture because now yeah. western society is in, is integrated into that yeah. and it's hopefully not going to be pure western culture hopefully we can move towards some integration where mm-hmm. both can exist in some kind of stasis right and, yeah. and help each other and, and coexist and become stronger because of that yeah. instead of being at odds right but yeah. it's a long ways to go i mean we have we have hundreds of years of mm-hmm. of of trauma and you know yeah. what i mean and 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 all kinds of I don't even know the word, but yeah. Well, and even like you think like, oh, fire management in the north, like who cares, right? Mm-hmm. Like if indigenous people want to burn up there, do whatever. But to me, we need to support that because those are often the fires that you know smoke out Edmonton and Calgary, like yep. you know all summer because like you know when a big boreal fire gets rolling, yep. it produces a lot of smoke. So mm-hmm. you know, I think that that you know there's there's ways easy wins in Canada Mm -hmm. and I think that we need to start doing stuff because with climate change like you know obviously our welfare risk is only going to get worse Mm -hmm. so yeah if we can you know start now at this kind of two-eyed seeing approach I think it'll be really yeah Yeah. beneficial I hope for everyone and for the forest too yeah this is a good conversation Mm -hmm. I enjoyed this (laughs) what time am I talking to when you were going like this I thought you were saying like wrap it up oh like like, I was tapping my wrist (laughs) yeah no already wow <laughs> no 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 um okay. but yeah it's it's 12 30 now so okay. you probably gotta get out of here but yeah um, well do you have any final 
I don't. I Questions. those are the, okay. those are the things that I wanted to get to. I think I want to point people towards the Good Fire podcast, which yeah. is going to come out. Well, this podcast is coming out in June. Okay. So yeah. hoping the Good Fire will come out sometime after that. Yeah. Hopefully quickly. Yeah. Not. I, I know I'm kind of going to be distracted, and you will be too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know it's kind of that happy medium for like you know. Yeah. But once baby comes and you get into a routine and back at work, it'll yeah. be yeah. Yeah, it'll be okay. So okay, yeah. I think that's, unless you have something else you want to kind of final Aww. words of wisdom. Yeah, no, I think it's just for me. Like, I don't want when people listen to it, because I know most people are listen from like a Eurocentric or a Western perspective. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want them to think, you know, that it's just, yeah, some kind of hippie stuff about, you know, like the, yeah. the trees and the animals are talking to you. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. It's more like, to me, it's more like there's scientific evidence for some of those things as well. Although so, that's yeah. the thing, we're coming mm -hmm. to a realization, like the, the, West, the scientific method is also coming to these realizations that the indigenous yeah. community is known for, ever yeah right like where it's just it just took took us a while to figure that out right? yeah well, like you were saying about the wolves eating berries and yeah and uh shrubs or whatever it was right like, yeah berries and fishing that right. just came out as a new discovery yeah that wolves do that and i was like anybody in the north knows yeah, that and trappers like they're all going to know that but yeah, yeah for some reason the western like the western science has only just figured yeah. it out well i because... think it was u.s researchers that found okay. that out it was like <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> yeah. thanks guys but the uh so like another big story was like the um uh like the birds of prey in australia you probably saw that one about oh, sure. sorry how they were dropping um uh basically they they were spreading fire the birds there oh, yeah. the falcons and stuff so yeah, to they were picking up burning branches from a fire, from a yeah. fire, carrying them somewhere and dropping them yeah. to start a fire. And they were they were preying on the the rodents that were running from the fire and the insects. Yeah, that That's kind bananas. of flee the fire. Yeah, I know it's so but, crazy. <laughs> so, but the crazy thing was was that was an um, I can't remember what's the word for a bird guy orna ornithologist ornithologist. Yeah, who like a Western science guy who went up there and observed three birds doing it. So like, you know, wrote a paper and got ton of press. Yeah. Well, there are ceremonies in from the Northern Territory that are five, you know, hundreds of thousands of years old that incorporate birds using fire in them. Yeah. So like indigenous people from that area have observed that and known that, yeah. you know, forever. Yeah. And so I think it's just kind of recognizing, you know, that indigenous people do know about fire too. Yeah. There's not only kind of one one way to see fire. Well, and this, and I think we said this in another episode too, was that the scientific method in its truest form, I mean, indigenous cultures have basically lived through that, yeah. through trial and error, right? Mm -hmm. And figuring out trial and error over thousands of years, figuring out what's right. So it, it yeah. is, in a sense, the same thing as the Western scientific method, only mm -hmm. in a less formal way, right? Yeah. It happened over generations instead yeah. of, Mm -hmm. whatever with a published paper right yeah. so it's yeah but it's the same technique though as science where it's like you know you're testing something right so obviously like i don't think that my ancestors just like you know woke up one day and like knew you know everything. although there's been some you know some that, that were gifted certain things but you know knew immediately like well this is exactly how we need to fire a meadow to you know promote moose coming back to right. it i think that it was more like you know maybe seeing a wildfire like and, and then you know seeing after what happened and then yeah. thinking like you know oh we should try that over here and then i mean maybe the first few burns got away or the yeah. You know, it was, it was burned error, right? too hot. Yeah. yeah and I think that that just happened over. And then obviously you hone your practice, right? And you pass on that knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so instead of writing textbooks about it, we like told stories about it, which is the the big difference. Yeah, it was just a different 
different culture. Yeah, right? well, Tr- Trent Nelson from Australia, he is one of the best quotes I've ever heard. And he's like always says about fire, I don't need a textbook. I have my grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> and like I love that quote from him because like his grandma's a fire. Well, they don't call them fire keepers, but you know, mm-hmm. I, in Australia. So yeah, he, he knew about fire from her. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's awesome. I, I hope that we see more collaboration. And I think, and it seems like from like what you've told me, yeah. like since mm-hmm. we've known each other the last few months and, yeah. and from outside, other outside people talking, it sounds mm-hmm. like as a culture, we are starting to re- recognize mm-hmm. the traumas that have happened and starting to recognize the injustices that have happened. Yeah. And we are starting to work towards that promotion of these kind of activities, right? Because yeah. it's, I think it's important as a society that we recognize and, and make amends right yeah. in those situations and make sure that environmental mm-hmm. integrity and stewardship is is held at the forefront of all of that right yeah so, and yeah. what i would say like to you know forestry folks that are listening into this is like you know and have had frustrations trying to work with indigenous nations or you know other things i think or you know seeing news stories about us and things is like just to remember you know what our nations have gone through and to you know have patience with us as we kind of move our way forward like it's going to take a long time for us to heal from some of the the trauma Mm -hmm. that our that our families have gone through but it's just you know I think like with with having support and allowing us to kind of being supportive of us bringing cultural practice back Mm -hmm. you know and having advocates and and allies in the non-indigenous community is is really helpful Mm -hmm. so yeah I would just say like I know people get frustrated when they're trying to work with a nation and you know, they have really good intent, but it's just not working out. Yeah. But just to remember, you know, that like lots of, of problems and finance, financial issues and stuff are a result of like the Indian Act and colonization. So, mm-hmm. yeah, to just kind of have a little bit of patience with our communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's like that, that myth you were telling me at the beginning that people mm-hmm. always think that like, uh, indigenous communities are getting all kinds of tax money from you know yeah. from Canadian taxpayers all the time, and they shouldn't be complaining or whatever, yeah. right? You hear that all the time, and yeah. the truth was, yeah, know. that so, and like basically since colonization, when Indigenous people like you know the treaties were signed or resources have been taken for our land or land has been sold, the federal government put it into trust. So there's these big trusts that the federal government holds, and it's actually the the amounts are confidential. But the last I heard was like 2.5 trillion dollars. So basically the entire apparatus in the federal government, so, you know, like um, Indian Affairs, what are they called now? Indigenous Services Canada and the Department of, I don't know, CERNAC or something, the Crown Indian Indigenous Relations, something like that. So uh, all of those are funded from that trust. So they're not actually funded from taxpayer money. And so any money that comes down to communities through that is also coming from this trust, which is our money that's being kind of so it'd be kind of like you or your family you know somebody saying like you know well we know more than you we're going to take your salary and store it here and then we'll give you you know someone over you and pay them out of that money to you know make sure that you're making the right choices in your life so i think that that's you know something maybe that that people don't know about that yeah that is messed up yeah (laughs) well and so what i've what some nations are trying so like treaty six you know they believe that when they sign treaty, they sign that relationship directly with the crown, mm-hmm. not with the government of Canada. So oh. what they're saying is that they want the money for their nations to come directly from that trust to their communities. And then their nations will instead oh, do the being, management. Oh, she's but, saying it's being filtered through the government right Through now. the federal government. to taking administration probably and stuff. Well, yeah. basically all the salaries of anybody employed in those departments, Comes right? from there. Yeah, so oh, it's geez. like, so when you think of that, so lots of them are saying like, you know, instead of having 
um, you know, the First Nations Inuit Health Branch, you know, and all those people overseeing, you know, our health. Instead, we'll have our own community health department with that money. But, you know, it's so that all comes from like that, the residue from the the Indian Act and and things. I know nothing about any of that. And so it's like it blows my mind to hear that kind of stuff. That's crazy. Well, it's so complex. And that's like what I get. And so lots of times, too, you know, people will say, you know, that there's no like a um, like title, you know, like lots of indigenous people don't believe in like title or whatever for individuals. But there's actually like an um, it's like such a complicated system of indigenous land rights. And, mm-hmm. you know, and we think of land as, as more communal than like kind of the individual European yeah. nation. So like to us, like there still is land ownership, right? But it's by a nation. It's maybe not by like the individual person who, you know, owns a quarter section. Right. So, but it's like, so those things, you know, it's just hard to, to figure them out. And even like me, like some of these things, you know, I spend my life doing this and I'm still like, whoa, didn't know that. Like didn't yeah. know. <laughs> Oh, it's bananas. Yeah. Okay. Well, we decided that it's very complicated and we should continue <laughs> to talk about it. And that's great. And listen to Good Fire. And yeah. That's, good yeah. Fire. yeah okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. This is perfect. Yeah, thanks, I think we Matt. wrapped it up in a very confusing and uh, hopefully very way. educational <laughs> way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks a lot for listening, guys. I really hope you liked that one. I know I really enjoyed it. Amy's awesome. Um, yeah. We. She continues to teach me a lot as every single time we sit down and, uh, you know, do one of these good fire podcast episodes, uh, I learn so much more and it's just, there's, it's such a well of knowledge and, uh, yeah, I really hope that through conversations like this, we can start to see more cultural burning on the landscape. Right. So, um, yeah, remember to in September, (laughs) I'll remind you good fire podcast, uh, September, 2019, it'll be coming out and all kinds of great stuff on there. So you guys are really going to like it. Um, remember to rate review and subscribe really helps me out. I really, really hope you guys do that. Appreciate it. And, uh, shoot me an email, yourforcepodcast at gmail.com. And I will get back to you unless something happens where I get flooded with a million emails. I will get back to you and it hasn't happened yet. So, (laughs) uh, all right, take it easy guys. Thanks for listening.